And this morning we continue our series that we've entitled Sin No More. Have you ever been in one of those conversations as a Christian where you are maybe sharing your faith with another person and you know that to be true to the gospel you have to share the bad news before you can really share the good news and have them appreciate it. Have you ever had that happen? You've been, you've been confronted with that reality. You know you've got to tell them the bad news and you don't know how they're going to take it. But before they can truly appreciate the good news, you've got to let them know where they stand with God. Often in my experience of sharing the gospel, I have discovered that people get offended when you start talking to them about sin. They're usually okay as long as you keep it abstract, meaning that you're simply talking about someone else's sin. But the moment you direct it towards them, and you challenge them in the quality of their character, or even come close to indicating that they could possibly, remotely, be a sinner before God. I had one woman tell me very, very candidly that she was downright offended that I would even suggest that she was a sinner. She was really offended by that. And I assured her that I wasn't saying that I was any better than she was. I tried to show her convincingly through the scriptures that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I got the distinct impression that this was the first time this person ever considered the reality that she possibly herself could be a sinner before God. And she found that extremely offensive. Extremely offensive. And she let me know it in no uncertain terms. What's interesting to me is how often people react offensively when you describe them as a sinner or you point that they are a sinner before God and when you demonstrate it by asking them a few qualifying questions and have them answer respectfully and they discover that they are not the good person that they always thought that they were. And even if they did a few bad things here and there, they still overall thought that they, was a, they were a good person until you begin to show them their imperfection in light of the perfection of Jesus Christ. And they are greatly offended. And the woman said something to me that I'll never forget. She said, how can you ever expect anyone to listen to you about God if you are going to offend them and call them a sinner? First of all, I never called her a sinner. That was a, a reality that she came to. I didn't just walk up to her and say, Hi, good morning, you're a sinner. And as I was standing there listening to her and watching the, her face change and her countenance change, I thought to myself, you know, it is so funny that people find it so offensive when you would even indicate or allow them to discover for themselves that they are a sinner. And, and many churches today will kind of skate around the issue of sin, if mentioning it at all, because they don't want to offend people. It's more important that the people be there than the people be told the truth. And yet never do I hear anyone ever, ever state to me the reality of how offensive sin is to God. He's the one that is truly offended by sin. He is so offended by it that it is easy for me to proceed to the next step in indicating that God hates sin. Now that might be something difficult for you to wrap your mind around. That God, the God of love, the God of grace, the God of mercy, can hate anything. But the Bible clearly teaches that God hates sin. But please know that our infinite God can hate sin. 
and still love the sinner. But he hates sin. It is detestable to him. Sin offends him in every way possible, as we will discover this morning. And yet we seem oblivious to that reality. As Christians, and of course as non-believers collect, that reality seems to be escaping each and every one of us, knowing that sin is offensive to God. We're very dismissive of sin in our culture. We are very lax when it comes to sin in our culture, especially our own sin. Sometimes we have a tendency to react more harshly towards the sins that we struggle with modeled for us on another person. We don't like that. We have a tendency to become very judgmental and critical when we see our own sins displayed in the life of another person. But rarely do we ever discover for ourselves how offensive sin is to God. And that God hates sin. And that lax attitude that we carry with us so often concerning sin, I think, has permeated much of our thinking. We have dismissed the seriousness of sin. We have, uh, we have dulled it, uh, its sharp edge of offense from us. We have created in our own mind that these are just mere mistakes because we're fallible people. We all do wrong. And we have a tendency to allow those things to justify the sin in our own life instead of taking it as seriously as God takes ser- as it, uh, that seriously. How serious does God take sin? Let us remember again what God needed to do to overcome the effects of sin. Let us never lose that reality of the seriousness of sin. That he came and died and rose again, subjecting himself to his own creation, being handled in the manner in which he was. Whipped, tortured, beaten, rejected, crucified, mocked, etc. He did that for sin. So therefore, how serious should we take sin? To know that it is that offensive to God. It is so offensive that he hates it. Today in our session titled Sin No More, The Offense, we want to learn and discover how offensive sin is to our God. Let's begin once again in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we discover a scenario, an account that is given to us where sin is the centerpiece. And there are four perspectives. There is Jesus himself. There are the people who are gathered there to listen to Jesus' teaching. There are the religious leaders who bring to him a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. And on center stage is the issue of sin. And there is no ambiguity that sin has occurred. Nobody is debating the fact that adultery is sin. The question is now what to do about it. Jesus there in the temple teaching the people, he was brought this woman to determine what was going to happen to her next. Let's read the account together starting in verse 2. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring up against him. Uh, Jesus bent down and began to write with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The reality of this sin is without debate. They all agree that this woman was in sin, and now the question was what to do about it. And I'd like to begin this morning by, the, by taking the perspective of Jesus. Because he's the final authority in all manners. He's our example in all things. The God of all creation, the one who has been there from the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, and all things that were created were created through him. If anyone understood this scenario perfectly, it would have been Jesus, would it have not? He is the one who is the author of life. He is the one who is now sent and sitting in the temple there in Jerusalem, knowing that in just in a week's time or so, he would be heading to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. So let us begin with Jesus. The one we believe sees the sin as it truly is. And we are going to discover how offensive sin actually is to God as we work through our time together this morning. But in actuality, that offense is not displayed here at that moment. Jesus does not display on how offensive the sin is before him. Because his purpose, his mission, was not to condemn, for the world is already condemned, but to save. What is sin? Well, you know, the Bible doesn't actually technically define it for us. But we sure get a good picture of it as we begin to mosaically place verse after verse after verse together, passage after passage after passage together, we get a good idea of what sin is. Whenever a concept, a theological concept, is needed to be embraced, it's always best to simplify it down to its one-word form. Sin could be simplified and reduced to one word, that is rebellion. Rebellion against who? God. Sin is rebellion against God. As one wrote, the Bible, however, gives no formal definition for sin. It describes sin as an attitude that prophesies sin as rebellion against God. Rebellion was at the root of the problem of Adam and Eve and has been the root of humanity's plight ever since. Sin, again, an action by which humans rebel against God, misses his purpose for their life, and surrenders the power of evil, rather, to the power of God. Sin, a rebellion against God. Wayne Grudem, in his book on systematic theology, wanted to state for his students the definition of sin, and he went on to state, We may define sin as follows. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Now that might define it for us, but it doesn't mean that we truly understand it. Just because we have a definition of a word doesn't mean that we truly comprehend the word. And that's why we have the entirety of the Bible that we have. People need to understand that when a theology is developed, it's not developed from one passage of Scripture, but it is developed from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end. And many people, when asked, where did sin begin, they often point us to Genesis chapter 3. Well, that's where sin began in the case of man. But sin existed before man's creation and was introduced to man at that point there in the garden. So where did it originate? I agree with those that sin originated in the fall of Satan. Satan, an angel created by God, one of the glorious angels created by God, along with Michael and Gabriel, wanted and desired to be like God and raised himself up 
exalted himself and desired to be worshipped as God was worshipped. How do we know this? There are two fascinating passages in the Bible. One is found in Ezekiel 28. The other one is in Isaiah 14 that give us the context and the description of the fall of Satan. As it is describing the king of Babylon, as it's describing the king of Tyre, we have within it the components of the fall of Satan. And in it we learn, if you will turn there with me to Ezekiel 28, we learn and discover why Satan fell. When you have a moment, please refer also to Isaiah 14, 12 through 17. But we find here in the lamentation over the king of Tyre, starting in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And then it begins to change. Very interesting. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, how was the king of Tyre ever in Eden? Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, braille, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub, and I placed you where on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire." Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom from the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profound the sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from the mist and consumed you. I turned you into ashes on the earth in the midst of all who saw you. And all know among the peoples are appalled by you. And you have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. In the Old Testament, often within prophecy, there is this intertwined reality of the day and that which is yet transcendent, something more that God is saying within it. And most scholars believe here that he is, he is paralleling the account of this king of Tyre with the fall of Satan. Wickedness had entered his heart. His beauty had caused pride to creep up within him. He sinned before God, and there is the conception of sin. This is where it began in the fall of Satan. It is interesting because he is described as one shining with the various um, jewels in which are described for us here in verse 13. In the book of Genesis, when it talks about the serpent... The word there in Hebrew could be translated shining one. Which is interesting because Paul, later in the New Testament, told us that Satan can appear as an angel, a shining angel. So sin conceived in the fall of Satan as he raised himself up against God in pride. God cast him out. Sin now is birthed. And God then begins to create, and during the act of creation, after man and woman have been created, the serpent finds his way to Eve. That the corruption that was found in Satan will now make its way found into God's new creation that he finds to be good. This is where sin started from. Sin was conceived by the fall of Satan and introduced at the temptation of Eve in the garden. And ever since that period of time, sin has permeated every aspect of God's creation. 
Every individual who's ever been born has been born into the effects of sin due to this reality. So now I lead you to Genesis chapter 3, a chapter that we are going to be looking at numerous times in our study of sin. And really the first eight verses I want to read together so we get a little bit of the understanding and make some points for you. Satan has fallen. Creation has proceeded. And now we find Eve alone in the garden and the serpent approaches her. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband uh, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Today, the account of Adam and Eve is greatly debated. We here at Calvary Chapel, I just want to make it clear for all, believe in a historical Adam and Eve. We believe that Adam and Eve actually existed. They were the first two of God's creation. Adam and then from Adam's rib came the woman. And there's many reasons that validate that understanding that we don't have time to explore this morning. But let us look at some things in this interaction between the serpent and Eve. First of all, they're talking together. Does that bother anybody else? I have never met a girl who feels comfortable with snakes, period, let alone talks to them. I can be coming home from from somewhere and my daughter and I get out of the car and we're walking up to our, our home and if my daughter sees a garter snake 200 yards away, she starts screaming and wants to go back into the car. Yet Eve felt completely comfortable in discussing and talking with the serpent. And in so doing, do you notice that the serpent challenges the word of God? The serpent then challenged God's judgment by claiming, you will not surely die, and promised instead a sophistication. Your eyes will be open. And he also promised a spiritual advancement, that they will be like God. Notice, what was the sin that Satan committed before God? What was his desire? To be like God. The lie continues. The same lie that caused his dispersal, his downfall, is now the lie that he brings to God's creation. You too can be like God. And today there are many who believe that one day men and women will be gods in and of themselves. It's a lie from the very beginning. But he challenges God's claim. God said very clearly in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat, you shall surely die. Period. Quotation marks. Satan said, Really? Is that really going to occur? I think what's going to happen is that you will become more sophisticated than you currently are. Your eyes shall be open. And that you'll become more than you currently are. That you will become like God. A state of perfection trying to be perfected. Notice that. Can you perfect perfection? But they were also lured. Notice this with me. 
lured by the prospect of instant pleasure, she saw that the fruit was good for food and supposed maturely. Eve suddenly succumbed to the temptation and then persuaded her husband also to eat. Instant gratification. She saw that the fruit was good for food. She preferred, number three, to accept the serpent's suggestion rather than God's commands. Scripture says that the essence of sin is to put human judgment before divine command. And notice that the promise of knowledge came to pass, but not in the way that they anticipated. They both realized that they were naked and guilt gripped them, Their eyes were open and they only saw their naked bodies and they attempted to hide themselves from each other and from God. Three places that sin struck there in the garden. Number one, sin struck at what is true. Number two, sin struck at what is right. And number three, sin struck at who am I. Now think with me for a moment the ramifications and the effects of sin. Imagine that the account of Adam and Eve sinning in the garden is like one who takes a stone, casts it into a pond, and the ripples from that stone's immersion in the water is now rippling to the very ends of the pond. From the very beginning, three things had been challenged by sin. Number one, what is true? Number two, what is right? And number three, who am I? I will make the argument that today's culture are plagued by, with confusion concerning those three things. Our sophisticated society, our technologically advanced society, is struggling with the reality of those three things. What is true? Today, absolute truth is frowned upon. Because then I become subjected to it. I want to keep it relative. I want to keep it moving. Therefore, I can place it where I want it. One of the ripple effects of sin is to undermine what is true. Number two, what is right. The Bible says that as we get closer to the end, everybody's going to be doing what's right in their own eyes. Talk about another relative term today. What is right? Talk about a moving target. Again, the, the, the word absolute before right cannot be used in certain sentences. So people don't know what is true. And they are very, very unwilling to embrace anything as absolute truth. Today people don't know what is right Because absolute moral standards are being alleviated and dismissed. But the third one is the one that is plaguing society today. People no longer know who they are. Who am I? Where do I belong? Who do I belong with? And they are trying to find their identity anywhere they can. Notice this with me. This is huge today, folks. People don't know who they are, and it's a direct result of sin. I don't know if I'm male or female. I don't know my sexual orientation. I don't know who I am. We have the three elements that were struck by sin today being the three most critical points of confusion in our society today in 2015. Talk about relevant. Talk about something current. And lastly, we should understand that by the account in these first eight verses, how irrational sin actually is. It doesn't make sense when you think about it. We started off with perfection. We started off with a perfect relationship with God. We started off with all that we could have and want. And yet we were persuaded to want more. Talk about irrational Listen to what one said. Finally, we should note that all sin is ultimately irrational in itself. It really did not make sense for Satan to rebel against God in the expectation of being able to exalt himself above God. Nor did it make sense for Adam and Eve to think that they could be of any gain in disobeying the words of their Creator. 
These were foolish choices. The persistence of Satan in rebelling against God even today is a foolish choice, as is the the decision on the part of any human being to continue in a state of rebellion against God. It's foolishness. And yet it characterizes our society from top to bottom. Sin is universal. It affects each and every one of us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are born into sin. It is interesting how many use this term to justify their sinful behavior. I was born this way. Well, you were born a sinner. Notice what the psalmist, even David, realized at his point in time. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Ephesians tells us the same thing. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of this air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature's children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that sin ultimately has led to death. For the wages of sin is death. As God promised, that if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Each person is born stillborn. And in that stillborn condition, they are trying to identify who they are. And they can't. They don't know what is true. They don't know what is right. They don't know who they are. They are bound by illogical reason and rational behavior as they position themselves before God in such a way. Ezekiel 18.4 stated, Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the Father as well as the souls of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall surely die. Ezekiel 18.19 and 20 Yet you say, why should not the Son suffer for the iniquity of the Father when the Son has done what is right and just before the Father and has been careful to observe all my statutes and live by them? The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor shall the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Each one is accountable for themselves before God. I want to continue reading some of these words to you. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. So now that we know a little bit about the conception and the, and the way that sin has permeated every aspect of life, you and creation, etc., we now must answer the question, why does God hate sin? Number one, God hates sin because it's the very antithesis of His nature. God is pure, righteous, and holy. And he has no pleasure in wickedness, and there is no evil that dwells within him. God hates sin because he is holy. His holiness is most exalted character of his attribute. Meaning that we must understand that God's holiness will not allow him to tolerate sin. His holiness totally saturates his being. His holiness epitomizes his moral perfection and his absolute freedom from blemish at any kind. Number one, God hates sin because it is the very antithesis of his nature. Listen to some of the words that God uses to describe sin throughout the Bible. Sin is met with strong feelings of hostility, disgust, and utter dislike. Isaiah 1.6, God says sin is described as a putrefying sore before him. Psalm 38.4 calls it a heavy burden. Titus calls it a defiling filth. 
Matthew calls it a binding debt. John calls it darkness. And Isaiah calls it a scarlet stain. Number two, God hates sin for the simple reason that it separates him from us. That is what separates man from God. That's what Christ came to bridge when he came in his first advent. And he bridged that gap through his death, resurrection, and so forth. And anyone who believes in him can walk across that bridge. But notice something else about our current society. And I really want to write upon this because I I think this is huge. I'm going to tell you something that might surprise you. Because it surprised me when I really started to see it for myself. I truly believe that we are living in a culture that many, if not most, of the people are relationship-starved. Relationship-starved. I have met people who can have 800 friends on Facebook and then tell me that If she were to leave this area, she didn't think anybody would miss her. Today, I think that we, through our social media and our social networking, can throw up a persona of who we think and we are, but in actuality, those social networking aspects have taken away from true, genuine relationships. True, genuine relationships. Let us consider how the word love has been so redefined in our society that often it simply is used for a justification for physical intimacy between two people. Or love is described by that physical intimacy in and of itself, yet the Bible says that love is so much more. Today I believe people are rationally starving. They are starving for true relationships with people. Every single statistical data that I read tells me over and over and over again, for people under 25 years old today, the most important thing to them is relationships. And yet, so many of them feel so discouraged in their endeavors to have relationships with other people. Truly, the relationship that they're missing is the relationship with God. And once God satisfies that desire, it allows us to have healthy relationships with other people. Because healthy relationships will never, ever develop in a self-centered, self-absorbed culture. It's not going to happen. If everybody is only concerned over themselves, you are never going to find a happy, healthy relationship between two people. The most successful relationships are built upon selflessness. Now that's just a a taste of that subject. But the relationships that people are looking for is only going to be satisfied in God. And once that relationship is satisfied, then they can proceed to try to have relationships with others in a healthy manner. It was sin that separated us from God and severed that relationship. As as Isaiah wrote, he said, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, that he will not be heard. It was sin that separated Adam and Eve and constituted their final expulsion from the garden in Genesis. Sin always brings separation. The fact that God hates sin means that he hates being separated from us. And therefore, his love demands restoration, which in turn then would demand holiness. And the only way we can restore that relationship with God is by dealing with our sin. The only way to deal with our sin is through Christ. The only way to stand before God in righteousness is not in and of ourselves, but before Jesus. Number three. God also hates sin because of its subtle deceitfulness, which entices us to focus on worldly pleasures to the exclusions of God's blessings. How many people have fallen into sin in their life to really regret it later on in their life? A momentary act of pleasure, a momentary lapse of reason, 
allowing for pleasure and temptation to take hold of their hearts, falling into sin, which at the moment was pleasurable. It was something that they desired and wanted. And then afterwards they discovered that it wasn't all that they had hoped it would to be. Sin causes us to be short-sighted in so many ways. And that short-sightedness often allows us to do things through the motivation of instant gratification rather than waiting on God and doing things as God says they should be done and truly enjoying them as God has stated for them to be enjoyed. Number four. Another reason God hates sins is that not only does it cause short-sightedness, but it blinds us to the truth. The reality of who God is is shuddered by the sin in our lives. God hates sin for that reason, that light hates darkness, that truth hates the lie. God wants His children to have all of the full riches of complete understanding of who He is, and sin shudders the eyes of the individual. Number five, God hates sin because it enslaves us and will eventually destroy us. The world is destroying people. Do we all agree with that? If Dean and I get one more email, one more text, one more phone call about an individual who has taken their life, we are already broken. Let me speak to you very candidly this morning. Suicide is at an epidemic proportion in the United States currently today. In fact, it's so concerning that the CDC itself is now monitoring how many suicide attempts and suicides are actually occurring per year. And they are absolutely concerned by the number of suicides that are taking place. As depression and despair grips the hearts and the minds of certain people, they feel that the only way to get out from it all is to take their lives. I am here to tell you today that the only way to get out is through Christ. Man, he came to give life and that life more abundantly. At that moment of despair, that moment of temptation, that moment of depression, where you think, this is it, I can't go any further, I don't know where to go, please remember these words. Turn to Christ. Get on your knees and just say, Jesus, save me. Help me at this moment. Guard my heart. Guard my mind. We have the answer for the most destructive force in our society, which is sin that's killing everybody. The source of all life is the person of Jesus Christ. Be sensitive to when people start talking to you about their ideas of killing themselves because it may not be a bluff any longer. Sin, God hates sin because it enslaves us and will eventually destroy us. We pride ourselves on freedom here in the United States of America. Oh, hands off my freedom, right? But how many things have we enslaved ourselves to through sin? How many people are really enjoying the freedom of the United States of America when they can't even enjoy the freedom from a bottle of alcohol, a bottle of pills, a destructive relationship? How are you enjoying the freedoms of the United States of America? All freedom in the United States of America has showed us is that we don't know how to be free. True freedom cannot be obtained unless it's obtained through God. Why do I say that? Because he separates us from the ultimate bondage, and that is sin. And that's what people don't seem to understand today. Are we truly free? Jesus said, I will set you free. Jesus said, the truth shall set you free, and that he is the truth. Number six, God hates sin because it lessens our love for him. Listen to these words. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world is the craving of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has done. Does not come from the Father, but comes from the world. James told us this in his very politically correct way. You adulterers people, don't you know that friendship with the world 
is hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend with the world becomes an enemy with God, for you cannot serve two masters. God desires you and I to have the same disdain for sin that He has. Knowing that we are sons and daughters of light and we do not belong in the night or in the darkness, we must recognize that God has set us apart as a holy nation, a people who belong to God. We cannot become holy on our own, so God has given us the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. We have His promise that He will help us in our struggles against sin day in and day out. We should hate sin because it separates us from God. We should hate it because it lessens our love and dulls our conscience because it blinds us to the things that God has for us. We should hate it because it grieves the Spirit of God. Our prayer to the Holy One is, may God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May the whole spirit, soul, body, be kept blameless at your coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to these words. I think they tell a lot. When we are being seduced by sin, we think, I know there will be a price to pay, but I've calculated the cost. I've added the columns, and I can handle it. The problem is the cost is never what you think. It never what you think, and it is never what you calculate. It's never what you thought. The cost is always infinitely higher so that we thought when we took the first step into sin. That's why God hates sin so much for how much it costs. And so I bring you back to John 8. As Jesus is being confronted by the religious leaders in what to do with this woman caught in sin. As he's writing in the ground and as each individual appears to be reading what he is writing, he states then, he who is without sin casts the first stone. This is Jesus we're talking about who sees the beginning from the end. This is Jesus who was there the day that Satan fell, that Adam and Eve fell. And knowing that from the very beginning that he was going to have to come to become Savior of the world. This cost that we just spoke of, this price He was going to pay in our place, a price and a cost that we can know where near touch in and of ourselves, He is able to breach for us. How serious is sin before God? God hates sin. We should hate it also. We should want nothing to do with it. We need to be honest with ourselves this morning, cleaning out our hearts and minds before God, knowing that everything is open and naked to Him anyways. We're not really hiding anything. But sin is keeping you from all that God has for you. Get rid of it. And it truly is a test to see where your heart lies. I've met men who have done some radical things as they were gripped in the bondage of pornography, ripping out their computers, placing themselves under accountability, and even then at that point discovering that their sin remains in their own heart. Though those objects and vehicles were once eliminated, the sin wasn't eliminated from their heart, and they needed God to change that. They needed God to rectify that. Are you in a relationship that is taking you away from God this morning? Is it worth it? You may have high hopes for that relationship, but is that relationship ever going to satisfy those high hopes that you have? What sin is worth holding on to in light of all that we have discovered this morning? That God has so much more for you. Sin is a reality. You cannot discuss Christian theology without discussing sin. And the true sin that we need to discuss is a sin that is completely offensive to God. For it is God that we have sinned against, and it is God that we must be reconciled with once again. We must understand that. 
And as R.C. Sproul stated, he's saying, understanding more deeply how abhorrent our sin is to God can change and reprogram our attitude towards sin itself. That's what we want to accomplish. We don't want to create a bunch of self-righteous people who are going out around the world saying, hey man, you guys are all in sin. Hey man, we all are in sin. But we desire what God has for it. We want the best, right? We want the best that God has. And obtaining that best, we must relinquish our sin. We must repent of it. Let it go. Clean it out. Clean it out, man. So how do you do that? As we close this morning and as we come to take communion together as a church, it all begins with Jesus Christ. First, we must be saved. We can do nothing to save ourselves from the effects of sin in and of ourselves. We must be saved. We must have that renewed spirit within us. We must allow that Holy Spirit then to sanctify our lives, changing our lives as we read the Word of God, as we spend time in prayers, as we fellowship with one another. We must allow the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to take place in our lives. Some practical things we can do is be accountable to someone, a prayer partner specifically, someone you can confide in and ask them to pray with you. We've had that happen so many times here at this church and we have seen God grant real freedom from bondages you never thought could ever be broken. I always want to end on the grace of God because when sin abounds, grace abounds even further, doesn't it? We never take grace as a license to sin here at this church but we sure take it as an alleviation of sin at this church. I thank God for His grace every single day to get me through the day one more day, one more time. So as we close this morning and as we come together in communion, we're talking about a subject that is very difficult for many people to accept and to wrestle with. We always want to place it upon someone else. We always want to magnify it onto someone else, throw it upon someone else. We never want to consider ourselves in the microscope. We never want to consider ourselves in the spotlight. But today, we want that spotlight to shine in our hearts and our minds. And we want to leave here today knowing that we got got right with God. I don't know what you struggle with. Lying. Pride. It's all offensive to God. Anger. Frustration. Worry. Do you know worry is a sin? Before God. Whatever it is. We're going to bow our heads right now before we take communion together. Let's pray.